Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Frank, the chief technologist at Orion Span, and we discuss his experiences from working in aerospace over the last four decades, leadership lessons from working with all of these great astronauts, and what living in space will look like. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hey, how are you doing this morning? Hey, Frank, how are you? I'm great. Where are you coming to me from? Sarasota, Florida. Okay, well, I'm coming to you from my living room in Kima, Texas. So we both, we both, uh, we, we share this um, Gulf of Mexico exposure thing to the hurricane season. So I'm glad <laughs> that you guys survived as well as we did here in Kima over this past few months. What's, what's the nearest like major city to that, I'm about 30 miles south of uh, Houston, right on the Gulf Coast. Okay, cool. I'm actually headed out tomorrow to spend a week in like Dallas, Fort Worth area. Okay, yeah, I'm uh, right across Clear Lake from Johnson Space Center. Well, that's why I live here. So, anyway, it's your podcast, so off off you go. Um, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, this episode is all about you, though, Frank. You're, the, you're okay. the main event today, my friend. We're going to shine all the light and make, <laughs> make you the rock star. I, right. I'm actually very excited. I, I'm a super big geek. I love space. And we were searching for you know really unique guests that were doing amazing things in, in space. And uh, we came across you and I was like, oh, that's so cool. Our team pitched it to us. And they said, we've got this guy, Frank, at Orion Span. And I read your 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 bio and your background. And I was just like, this guy, this is cool. You got to work on like the ISS in the eighties, right? Well, yeah, I became uh, involved in the space flight stuff. Um, when I worked for McDonnell Douglas beginning in 1984, at that time it was space station freedom and we were competing for one of the work packages. So it was very conceptual at the time. And I was working with a group of uh, people, engineers, industrial designers, basically starting on things like how big is the door going to be and then taking it from there through all the constraints and, uh, and drivers, you know, that you deal with on a project like that. And it was a very unique opportunity to kind of get in on the ground floor of something that huge and do work that, uh, you know, much of that work ended up actually uh, surviving all of the design reviews and many of the drawings that I was doing on a, on a drafting table back in 1985 and 86. Uh, if you were to look at the space station today, those configurations are evident in the hardware. So, you know, it's been a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, there's, when you talk about those drafting stations, my uh, dad would take me to work with them, and he was an engineer. Uh -huh. And I remember he had, they had one of those big, you know, drafting tables, and I got to play with the. There was like an electric eraser that could erase like better than anything in the world, and that's like a huge memory for me. Yeah. Well, you know, there was. It's not only been an interesting thing to be involved in in terms of the technology of space station, but also the evolution of the development environment. Uh, and I'm very interested in that, going all the way back to like Skunk Works and Kelly Johnson and the culture of innovation that has happened over the course of, you know, my lifetime, let's say. And we've gone in the last 40 years from drafting tables to virtual reality development models that are highly interactive. And in the process had to come up with new ways of working together. 
you know, new ways of dealing with not only these tools, but how they affect people's means of conceptualizing and sharing their concepts with each other. So that's been really exciting, you know, not only what you're working on, but how you're working on it, the tools you use, and the culture around those things. So if, you, if you'd like to talk about that, I find it very interesting. Um, and it's probably one of the most exciting aspects of my career going forward is to see how that continues to transpire, right? What type of technology are you using at Orion Span to, to build? You guys are building space stations, right? Well, Orion Span is a startup. And what we have been doing is using state-of-the-art tools, whether they're adopted from the architecture field. Uh, we have virtual reality models on our website that were built by a guy named David Gull, who works in the VR world. And his, his fundamental focus from a business perspective is supporting the real estate market. So he creates high-resolution interactive models of condos and, and homes so that people can experience that virtually before they invest in it. And we saw his capability as being directly applicable to the Orion Span project in terms of putting something out there that people could really interact with and, and get a sense for what this thing would feel like. And we would like to take that whole virtual reality development environment and apply it to the greatest possible degree to accelerate our program, reduce costs and reduce risk. Now, this is something that Bell Helicopter has done, uh, exploring the whole realm of virtual development environments. And another thing that kind of ties into that is the idea of a, of a digital twin model. And we've worked with a, uh, a company called Visco who developed a, a digital twin technology that's really being applied in the energy sector to create digital twins in the development phase of offshore platforms and then use that digital twin as a management tool. Once the, once the asset is real, they can actually go into the digital twin and query the various elements of that to determine what their performance characteristics are in real time and feed the whole acquisition and logistics planning environment with the resulting data. So, you know, these are things that are next generation tools that Orion Span will love to apply um, if we have the opportunity to move that program forward. What's, what's standing in the way? Uh, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. Come on, so, I know, you know that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the world of uh, commercial space flight, there are a variety of players in there. You have your Bransons and your Musks and your Bezos and your Bigelows. And, you know, and, and everybody has to have critical mass. If you can't achieve critical mass as a development team to have the, the uh, resources available to make all your concepts real and push them along, you can't get anywhere. So as this commercial space flight uh, environment has kind of evolved over the last three years since we launched the Orion Span project, NASA has made some decisions on who's going to attach to the front end of ISS. For example, Axiom Space has won that game. And so they have that momentum and other, other players in the field are reacting to that. Uh, and, you know, the opportunity here really uh, is to figure out a way where this industry can collaborate as a whole instead of competing. We need to collaborate in such a way that collectively we make this new economy, this, you know, commercial Leo economy happen. 
in Orion's span is, you know, we're a small dark horse in that race. I think we've got some great concepts uh, that could play out, whether it's, you know, on our platform or in the context of other people's commercial space platforms. Uh, I'm looking for opportunities to kind of build that collaborative environment. And it is kind of growing um, organically, if you will. You know, the players in the field recognize that this is something we're going to have to collaborate on in order to make it work. So there's some very interesting players there that Brian spans one small dark horse. Well, it's also really positive because, you know, and you look up to a, a decade before this past one, there wasn't a whole lot of things happening. It was, it was stagnant, right? And then you get the SpaceX and the Blue Origins, as you mentioned. And now it's opening up or at least I, and I don't have like subject matter expertise on the space investment <laughs> market. Mm-hmm. Right? right. But it's got to seem, you know, reasonable that with all of these companies doing well and advancing in space, that more private money would, would start to pop up there. Yeah. And, and that's true. You know, people like to bet on a winner. But in terms of, you know, whether this is something new that are, or that has happened over the last 20 years, there are really precursors that go way back to the time when I started working on Space Station in 1984. There was a company called Space Industries that was started up by Max Faget, who was the chief architect over at JSC, and in collaboration with people like uh, Professor Larry Bell at US, uh, University of Houston. And they had a concept for a free-flying space station that would have been a commercial space station way back before the ISS program started. Um, It would have been delivered by the shuttle to low Earth orbit. It would have been maintained by the shuttle on, you know, uh, crew visitation flights. And so, you know, their program became a political football in the whole ISS uh, political environment because they were a little bit of a threat to the funding for the ISS program, space station program. So, you know, those are the kinds of things. It's not a technical environment that you're dealing with always. It's a multi-dimensional thing, and there are a lot of different uh, aspects of it that can harpoon a program. In their case, they became a political football. And then later on, there was a company called SpaceAB that I worked with. I was actually employee number 33, and uh, my role there was director of product definition, which was a very kind of, big fuzzy role, but we were providing commercial spaceflight services with pressurized laboratories and unpressurized cargo carriers that would fly in the orbiter's cargo bay. And the company essentially had a service contract with NASA. And we told them, hey, we'll show up with our commercial assets. And when the when it's time to launch, we'll be ready to go. We'll pass a flight readiness review and when you guys get on orbit, your astronauts can come operate in these commercial facilities. And after the mission is over, we'll take that hardware back and prepare it for our next commercial mission. Uh, at that time, this was like in the, um, in the 80s and 90s when SpaceHab was doing really well. But NASA wasn't really designed at that time to deal with commercial services as they are now. So uh, SpaceHab ran its course we actually had a commercial space module program that was very similar to what Axiom is doing today. We had a model similar to that that we were working on in the uh, late 2000s called Enterprise Commercial Module Program that would have been doing many of the things that the commercial uh, environment would 
do now that would have started 20 years ago. And, and so like speaking of, of the past and have you ever gotten to, uh, or I guess better way to say this is, have you ever gotten to go up into any of the space stations? Uh, no, I haven't. As close as I've gotten is uh, doing some parabolic flight experiments. When I was working um, here in Houston in the 90s, I was involved with the crew healthcare systems development program. And that involved a lot of uh, medical capabilities that they wanted to develop in, in advance of putting people at risk on orbit, as well as environmental health and crew fitness uh, capabilities, exercise capabilities, and what have you. A big part of that had to do with the interaction of human beings with the hardware. And um, so I flew on about 40 parabolic flight sorties on the KC-135. So that amounts to let's see, 40 flights, 40 parabolas per flight. That amounts to like 12 hours of total exposure to micro-G. And I also had the tremendous opportunity to fly in one-sixth and one-third G to simulate Martian and lunar environments, which was a lot of fun. And uh, as part of that experience, I got to fly uh, flight experiments with Joe Kerwin, uh, one of the Skylab astronauts, on things like uh, crew emergency return vehicle operations development. It was really a lot of fun and um, great experience for a designer. Believe me, if, if you haven't experienced it, you, you don't get it. I haven't. And I've actually been looking at the different, you can actually, private people can now go experience this. I, I would call oh, yeah. it like weightlessness as a layman, but you called it micro G. Right. Yeah. Weightlessness is, um, it's a phenomenon. And depending on where you are and, and what the conditions are around you, there's always some influence of gravity. You know, when you're in free fall in orbit or whether you're in free fall on a parabolic flight aircraft, we call it weightlessness. But if you're actually attached to a spacecraft, unless you're exactly at the center of mass of that spacecraft, there are some micro G effects that occur. Uh, due to the rotation of the spacecraft, for example, or vibrations on board, what have you. But it's an incredibly unique experience. It's not like being, I I do some diving, so it's not like being underwater. It's like a completely different thing. Right. Well, when you're underwater, you still know which end is up because your otoliths are still working, right? Um, Now, the first time when you float off the floor in parabolic height, it's really a lot of fun. I highly recommend that you do it. I'm going to come out to Texas and do it. Let's do it. Uh, well, you know, zero. I don't know where the zero G corporation is flying their missions from these days, but you can, I'm sure, go online and find them and uh, book yourself onto a flight. That's who you would recommend, zero G corporation. Yeah, that's uh, that's who you'd go to right now, and I believe uh, NASA is currently contracting their zero G uh, missions with a commercial contractor, zero G corp. I love that we've we've started to do that. We when when there's commercial ability and the potential for people to make money, it just drives the industry forward. It drives the technology forward and it I, I right. want to go to I want space to be something we explore. I'm an explorer at heart, right? And at first I was a big fan of like I heard Musk, heard him talking about Mars, and I was like, interplanetary species. But then I heard Bezos talking about essentially like giant mega floating structures and that can be placed, you know, relatively close to, to earth, you know, essentially like a, a cruise ship in space. Right. And I thought, well, if it can mimic gravity and it's like this whole experience, you, why would we need to go 
be on a rock, you know, another rock. We, I don't necessarily need to be an interplanetary species. We just need to be like a space exploring species. Right. Yeah. Well, it kind of goes to the whole, um, what is the experiential objective of all of that for a person like you who would like to go and do and explore and experience. Okay. If you look at a platform that would offer you a one G environment while you're on that, you know, have that perspective from earth orbit or wherever that takes away one of the unique aspects of a spaceflight experience, which is that zero G experience, right? Everybody thinks, you know, I'm in space, I'm going to float. Okay. So, you know, looking at things in terms of experience design, the commercial sector is looking at it that way as well. If you have a high net worth individual who wants to go to orbit for 10 days, uh, that experience starts long before launch. That experience starts when they make the decision that they're going to commit to that activity. And there are companies out there right now that are addressing that full spectrum of the mission from when someone has an initial interest in that and they might want to go take some take some training, dip their toe into the water and see if they like it. Jason Andrews has a new company called Orbit that is addressing that whole market for high net worth individuals who want to enter that process and then go as deeply into that process as they choose, but to gain the experience. And, you know, that's kind of similar in a way to uh, someone who wants to climb Everest, for example. You don't start by climbing Everest. You start by doing a little bit of rock climbing and see if, if that's your cup of tea. And if it is, you might find yourself at some point at a base camp on Everest or at the summit. But that summit experience is a very, very small fraction of the overall experience that you're looking for. And then it doesn't end then, okay? Because you still have to come down from the mountain. And then you have to deal with how did that influence the rest of my life? How did it influence my relationships? How do I look at the world differently having experienced that? So that's really a, that's a fun aspect of the development environment for commercial spaceflight is to look at it from that experiential perspective. It's not all about the technology. Have you gotten to spend a lot of time working closely with astronauts? Uh, yeah, I've, I've had tremendous opportunity. Uh, one little story I'll tell when I was working on the uh, Space Station Freedom Program in Huntington Beach, California from McDonnell Douglas, we had an underwater test facility. It was 40 foot deep tank. And they wanted to test out the processes of building truss structures out of the orbiter payload bay. And at the time, Pete Conrad, um, third man to walk on the moon, he was a VP and he came out to the, to the site where we were building this hardware and I was in charge of assembling the hardware. He got out of his car one morning and said, hi, I'm Pete Conrad. I'd like to come out uh, work on this stuff with you so I know what I'm working with when I get in the pool and do the testing. You mind? And I said, do I mind? You know, and, and he came out for a whole week in his T-shirt and boots and was drilling holes and lifting beams and, and uh, essentially working side by side with them. So I had that opportunity to meet him. I met Bruce McCandless, and Neil Armstrong and Gene Cernan and Joe Kerwin and Dave Wolf and Bob Obermeyer and uh, Bo Bobco and Mike Lounge and Bernard Harris and all these guys that I've had tremendous opportunity to work with and learn from. Yeah, I was reading one of the articles you had written and you were talking about how you got to work with Mike Lounge and 
it, he was, um, or could you describe it? He was the astronaut that went up directly after the Challenger incident? Right. Uh, Mike Lounge was the guy who hired me at, at Space Hab, and uh, he was a VP there in charge of advanced programs. And uh, Mike was a space shuttle astronaut on two missions, one of which was the mission immediately after that uh, vehicle came apart on, on reentry. And um, I asked him one day, were you, were you concerned on ascent day, on launch day about that? And he said, I was not concerned because I knew that everybody on that team had done the absolute best job of preparing a perfect vehicle for that flight. So if there was any time to not be concerned, it was on that flight because the vehicle was immaculate. Um, but I learned a lot from Mike Lounge. He's a tremendous mentor, and uh, we lost him to pancreatic cancer a few years ago, and I miss him a lot. You can tell a lot about his character, though, when he's, you know, as you talk about him, and for him to to feel that way about the team and to understand that and and to show that, you know, courage and and you know, I mm-hmm. guess faith for for the team and the work that you were doing and and knowing those people. Uh, and being around them while they're preparing. And, you know, as you mentioned, like you call it the vehicle, right? I'm learning all these new words today. <laughs> it's like the common terms, oh. right? I like the vehicle and, uh, you know, ascent and reentry. I'm, I'm up in my space, my space knowledge right now. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. But yeah, that, that's a, he's a really, a really good story. And I think that, you know, we could write a whole chapter in a leadership book about that guy. Oh, leadership. Um, when you look at where these astronauts come from in their careers, they have all come from environments where they understand what leadership is all about. You know, and typically they say a great leader comes from being a good follower. And, uh, you know, when I was fortunate enough to have Mike as a mentor, I, I studied his leadership approach. And, you know, there were things about, like any individual, you always learn to be sensitive to their cues. And sometimes Mike would, he wouldn't reprimand me, but I would be telling him about the solution to something and he would say, no, Frank. And after those two words, the wisdom was about to emerge, okay? So you start taking notes after the no, Frank, because he always had a very insightful way of communicating why or why not. And he also had a very interesting approach to calculated risk and intuition. Um, sometimes it was hard to determine when he was acting or deciding things based on intuition or on fact, because he did have that leadership quality of conveying a sense of confidence where when the leader says that's the way you're going to go, you might question him, but be ready for no Frank. Okay. So there's, there's always calculated risk. And, um, that was evident in the way he played golf. It was evident in the way he, uh, he operated in a professional environment. Um, always, always very consistent with Mike. Yeah. And where are you spending the majority of your time today? Uh, I'm working from my home, uh, whether it's consulting with the Orion Span project or working on Green Tech Motors, which is another project I've been involved in for a number of years. But with the COVID environment being what it is, uh, everybody's adapting and um, doing the best we can, making progress as best we can, and looking forward to when this uh, is no longer an issue. What's, what's the Green Tech Motors like? Uh, Green Tech Motors is a company that was founded uh, in 2010 
and they are licensing uh, patented technology from the Boeing Corporation that was invented by a guy named Mark Cleveland. Mark Cleveland uh, was best man in his wedding. We've known each other for 40 plus years, and he and three other guys and myself started developing motor technology in his garage uh, with the idea that we would build electric human hybrid bicycles. And Boeing found out that he was developing technology in the garage and under his employment contract, they said, well, you can develop that inside Boeing or you can stop right now. So uh, they brought the project into Phantom Works where he was an employee at the time. And that resulted in a number of patents that were licensed to Green Tech Motors, who then reached back to the original five guys and said, you guys can be our brain trust for developing this technology. And uh, so here we are years later, and um, I'm involved in helping steer that company toward its goal of commercializing uh, new technology, electric motors, mainly for the uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning space, because that's where there's great opportunity to replace existing motors with higher efficiency motors. The preclusion there has been that higher efficiency motors are bigger and heavier than the ones they replace. So it costs a lot of money to make that decision. And it's not just the cost of the motor. It's the cost of re-engineering the motor-driven system to deal with this bigger, heavier, larger motor uh, and then getting limited benefit out of it. So our, our value proposition is uh, efficiency density where we can bring a replacement, a direct drop-in replacement technology that, that saves money and is affordable to integrate into existing systems. And so you get to geek out all day, back and forth between space, new, building new space stations and building high-efficient motors. Yeah, I mean, being a creative individual, you never really turn that off. You know, I've got half a dozen projects I would love to launch, uh, everything from exercise devices to, uh, to children's educational toys. And, you know, there's, there's always something. But you only have so many hours in a day. And um, you have to prioritize. So, well, so how do you like? What's your framework for prioritization? Well, it's whack-a-mole, really. Um, you know, some days you wake up and you're dealing with uh, intellectual property issues uh, that have a limited limited window of opportunity. You have to you have to meet the deadline. Some days you're dealing with uh, corporate structural issues or issues associated with with stockholders as a, as a board member, you know, I'm always concerned about looking after the interests of our shareholders. Uh, sometimes it's doing research into technologies that might be glued together into a solution. So um, this being a CTO podcast, we talk a little bit about, you know, the role of, of the innovator in our uh, commercial economy. It's, it's a great place to work, you know, as a chief technology officer, or chief innovation officer, or space architect, you're always looking for the collective being more than the sum of its parts, right? So, and that not only it transcends the areas of technology into the areas of business development and you know product definition and strategies and everything that goes with it. Yeah, I like that. I'd never heard that title before. Product definition. That's that sounds like an interesting. Interesting title. It's a, it's a title that I assigned to myself, they have because they were looking for, uh, well, how do we characterize your role in the organization? And um, so that's how we chose to characterize it. 
And I think that from a professional perspective, it makes it difficult to find a job application that you can, you can respond to because nobody asks for that. Okay. They ask for this particular type of engineer or that particular type of engineer, but seldom do you find a job requisition for somebody who's like a, a universalist. Okay. I've been called by, by coworkers, a combobulator because uh, although the, the concept of discombobulation is very uh, familiar to everybody. The, ton- the concept of combobulation is exactly the opposite. When you take a bunch of stuff that doesn't seem to go together and presto, you create something that, that's amazing, right? So um, there's, there's a certain amount of combobulator in me, and there's a certain amount of uh, right brain, left brain thinking is a dichotomy that people tend to refer to. And then there's that third lobe in your brain that is the combination of the two. And I think that's the space where a lot of people in this world, that's where they occupy. Um, It's a combination of intuition, fact, belief, you know, creativity versus analytical reality. It's the world that uh, chief technology officers, I think, really live in and, and are most comfortable in. How do you know when to go with intuition over fact? Well, there's a leap of faith uh, at some point. You know, if, if you have a limited amount of time and resources available to support a decision, sometimes you can do the best you can to get the facts. And at some point, you are forced to make the call. You know, um, it's like when you're in the red zone in the Super Bowl and it's a broken play and you know you've got so much time to get rid of the ball, at some point, you don't know that it's going to be a completed pass, but you do the best you can to to throw the ball and get it there, right? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it's intercepted, but you know, under the circumstances, it's intuition, and then skill and talent kind of takes over, uh, and then there's always a bit of luck involved. Yes, and I find that the more prepared I am in life, the luckier I get, like just repeatedly. I've, I know I've heard it a lot before, but then when I started actually acting on it and preparing better, I just realized it's like luck seems mysterious until you realize that you can create an environment where it's more common. Right, right. Well, what do they say? Uh, Luck is when preparation meets opportunity, right? And, um, you know, then then there's always that aspect of perceptiveness. If, If you don't look for, if you don't keep an open mind as to where those opportunities are going to come from, you'll miss them. They'll go by, you know, an opportunity is like, um, it's like a moving series of windows, you know, at some point you got a window moves by and it may not have been the entire opportunity, but there might be another window moving by and the two will intersect for a certain period of time. And when you see that intersection happen, you go, okay. And sometimes that's intuitive. Uh, the sense to which it's intuitive is how broadly are you setting your antennas? How, how much are you really taking account of and looking for those intersections of conditions that provide that opportunity? I lo- no, I want to be like preach right now. This is great because I, I'm exp- I know intuitively right now as you're describing this, like I feel that, like I, I, I know that to be true. And there are some 
you know, other interesting things, like, first of all, you can hesitate and miss the window. <laughs> I've done, I've done that before. You can, you can take the shot and it just looks like it doesn't work out in the next six months. And maybe other people from other perspectives are looking at it and saying, not oh, failure. You know, I told him he shouldn't have done that, or I knew that wasn't going to work out for them. But then a year later, that ended up being the best move of your entire life. And you could take a victory lap, right? And so it's it's just fascinating. I, I'm always trying to understand better about life. But one of the things, one of the lessons that I've been learning more recently is that if I'm, and we'll, we'll go back to like the prepared thing, if I'm prepared, if I have my ducks in a row, if I'm in a clear state of mind and have all of my loose ends tied up, then it's easier for me to sit back with clarity and watch those windows align. I can't make them align, but I can be prepared and patient and kind of just be ready. But if you see those windows starting to come together and you've got a a messy room, you've got a bunch of loose ends and a a, a bunch of commitments that you haven't fulfilled, but you've agreed to, you've got too much weight to to, to try to make that shot. It just doesn't work. Right. Well, you know, it comes down to a question of how much time and how much bandwidth do you have, right? I mean, if you're carrying a lot of things with you that you have yet to complete for whatever reason, because you don't have data available to you, or you don't have what you think you need to make a decision, or you're, you're striving for a level of perfection that might not be appropriate for that particular need, uh, sometimes it's better to just get things off your plate and free up that bandwidth so that you're ready to do what's next, because there's always going to be something more than what you expect coming at you. There are surprises coming at you. And if you don't retire those processes at some point and get happy with them, you don't have the bandwidth to deal with what's next. And I could t- tell another story about Mike Lounge, for example. I'd go golfing with him. He would, he would walk onto a golf course with a seven iron and no other clubs and play with a seven iron and beat me. Right. And he was standing on the tee one day and I said to him, Mike, I I look at you analyzing what you're going to do next and having an approach for exactly what you're going to do. And and he said, no, Frank, sometimes you just have to step up and hit the ball. And he stepped up and hit the ball. Okay, so, you know, that's the question of are you prepared? He was prepared. He'd been playing with a seven iron all day. You know, he wasn't going to be any better prepared if he waited for another five seconds or took another 10 practice swings. You know, sometimes you just have to go with it and either trust yourself or trust the rest of the people that you're working with, that they are also on a similar uh, wavelength with you, you know, that they are also paying attention to all these things. And that gets into the whole interpersonal dynamics of creative environments. That's, uh, that's an interesting place to, to work. Have you gotten into writing a lot? Like, do you regularly write? Oh, I write a lot. Um, probably too much, but uh, as a um, as a creative writer, no, I haven't. Uh, I, w- I would love to do that. Actually, I consider, you know, I've got a bachelor's degree in fine arts from University of Illinois, which was really the foundation of my my career as a designer was as an industrial designer. And over the course of time, I've had the opportunity to work in in space technologies and space-related projects. And I consider that my media as an artist. You know, pursuing my degree as a space architect was a, a bit of a concession toward that. University of Houston provides a unique program to get a master's degree in space architecture. 
So um, having known the, the faculty there for a number of decades prior to making the decision to get that degree, I knew who I was going to be studying under, and, and I just wanted to add that to my resume um, to sort of solidify the whole idea that space architecture is a media, okay? It's a creative media, and that's, that's the way I approach my, my career as a creative person. Still, is, my, is the mindset of an artist more than a technologist. I love it, too, because when you have a strong foundation in creativity and then you apply the engineering skills to it it's like a dual dual threat it's it's a very useful combination to have it's like a programmer who's also a really great designer right they're very rare they're like unicorns but they're unbelievable when you find them right well take you for example as the host of this podcast you're a communicator okay and as a person who's not a subject matter expert in anything the effectiveness i have in a team of subject matter experts is the ability to communicate with them and enable their communication with each other in such a fashion that everybody has that freedom to be creative, okay, in that environment and still get the job done. That's kind of a, um, it's a skill set as a communicator. And you can do that many different ways. You can do it standing at a whiteboard and doing a chalk talk in front of somebody which I think is a dying art in the land in in the world of PowerPoint and, and sophisticated models. I, I've been in a situation where I've watched people stand at a whiteboard with a dry marker and explain things to me in the form of a few diagrams in minutes that would, in a lesser communicator, have taken hours or days. But the skill that that person had in addressing this particular person's need for information was just amazing. And I think that's a role that can be played in organizations is to be that facilitator amongst all these various different subject matter experts that helps them to weave together into a fabric that really makes sense, right? Gets into the whole nature of interfaces, uh, which we could have a whole discussion on interfaces. Um, be glad to dive into that if you want. Yeah, let's talk about it. Like interfaces, as in like the the the, the dashboards of the vehicle, or the you know user interfaces of software. Right. Well, every time you have two functional items that intersect with each other, you've got interfaces that occur. And in our common common structuring of projects, we look at the spaces between interfaces. And we try to fulfill the functions in those spaces, right? You have a subject matter expert that works on a propulsion system or a guidance system or a power system or an environmental control and life support system or all those subject matter experts. They've they're got their boundaries and they need to stay in that boundary and solve that problem. But at the interface, that, that solution should be a black box at that interface, and there needs to be people who focus on the functional relationships of interfaces between systems, between components, okay, between the, the user and the technology. If it's a dashboard or a, you know, a display or whatever it happens to be, that's where the problems really occur because if people are solving the problem within their black box, nobody needs to know how that problem is solved because it's predictable at its interface. 
Now, if, if you leave that predictability to the end of the development program and say, okay, well, we're going to all work on our little black boxes and we'll figure out the interfaces later. That's kind of doing it in an inside out manner because you're leaving all your problems to the end. Okay. Those problems should be anticipated at the beginning so that you first design the architecture of interfaces so that it's very viable and it's very inclusive. And then you let people solve their black box issues in between those interfaces however they want because you know what the behavior is going to be at the end of the day. The behavior is going to be this or the behavior is going to be that. And if those people working that black box solution recognize that, oh, look, something's changed. Something's changed about my interface here. Now you can deal with that problem proactively instead of at the end of the day when, you know, it's going to cost you more time and more money. It's going to break your schedule because you had something you didn't anticipate at the interface, right? So this is something that happens in terms of a technology development program and something as sophisticated as a commercial space station. There are thousands of interfaces going on. There's a whole hierarchy of them, right? And similarly, in the development team that's associated with that end product, there are interfaces between all these people and all these subject matter experts and the products of their efforts, right, that need to be predictable and dealt with in an affordable and rapid manner um, so that people can make good decisions. I like the way you describe that. It's like an interface stack. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty cool. Now, I'm, based on like how you think and, and what I've been learning from you in this conversation, I'm really curious to know, for, for yourself, how do you define success? Wow. Um, personally? Yeah, yeah, you as a human, yep. Right. Well, if I have an opportunity to apply my skills, my unique set of perspectives in a way that helps other people achieve their goals, then I feel like I'm, I'm achieving my professional objectives right which are very closely tied to my personal objectives as an as an artistic person right um everybody's everybody's looking for satisfaction regardless of how you measure it you know so there's one measure am i enabling other people to succeed through my efforts that goes back to a very kind of a zen approach to uh the concept of wealth uh, I worked with a guy one time who said in the Chinese culture, a person's wealth is measured by how many other people have a, uh, an opportunity to make their living based on you making your living. Now, uh, so that applies in a sense. Financial reward, security, that sort of thing is something that I think anybody has a right to if they're applying themselves effectively. There should be that. It's not always the case. But there again, there's risks involved and there's decisions involved in how you want to manage that aspect of a career. But, uh, you know, I, I think success for me is really uh, based on am I achieving my potential? Mm. And that potential, you know, in, in, this, in, in this career, learning is something is a continuous process, right? You're always learning something. And if you're not learning something every day, you're blowing it. So uh, I do spend a lot of time researching various, every time I'm interested in something, I'll give 10 minutes to it to see whether it's something I need to dive into deeper. Do you feel like you're achieving your potential currently? No, no, frankly, I don't. Um, I feel that, uh, you know, earlier 
there was a comment, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. And if you don't affiliate yourself with a team that gives you the opportunity to satisfy those particular needs of fulfillment, right? It become it become become very frustrating. And in the COVID environment right now, there are a variety of different things that are impacting this commercial space sector, whether it's restrictions on how many people you can have in a given work environment. That affects how rapidly can you build a team? Does does your team development strategy match what you had planned for a year and a half ago? Okay. And how is that burning down your schedule? And how is that burning up your budget? So, you know, that's that's where a bit of the frustration comes in. And so I mean I I, I could be much happier. We could all be much happier, right? So um, you know, I, I'm I'm never really satisfied, no. Me either. Like I, I'm a pretty hungry person, but when I do have those moments of feeling out of sync with what I'm, what my current routine is versus what I believe my potential could be, you know, and I have, I have them, I don't know, several times a year, maybe, right? Because it's not something to get perfect all the time. And if somebody's figured out how to get it perfect all the time, <laughs> let me know, right? But one of the things that I've developed, and my, my driver is really from. Uh, you know, my mom passing away a few years ago, that was like the big thing that, that clicked in me when, when you think about losing a parent or something, that's one thing, when you hold their hand, while they pass away, it just gives you uh, like this under this, this unique understanding, I guess, similar to what you were describing with, with the, the zero G, the only way you can know it is to experience it. And right. when you experience the finite nature of life, and you stare it right in the eyes, it, it just for me, it lit a fire and then that fire burned for a long time. And then it, then it started to become this thing where I had to figure out how to keep it going, right? Like I knew what it was like to live with a fire in my belly. And now I had to figure out how to keep it going. And so syncing up, uh, my, my, my schedule or the, my habits, I read this, um, this one fantastic book called atomic habits. And I'll tell you what, Frank, that thing, the, you know, I'm sure I'd heard the advice before, but the way this author described it was phenomenal. Have you come across that book yet? I haven't, but but if it deals with the limitations of time available for all of us and how precious time is, uh, and then you've experienced those situations where you realize that some things are irreversible. Um, the Green Tech Motors team recently lost one of our subject matter experts who was a guru in electric motors. Everything that man ever knew about how to solve our problems is gone with him unless he communicated to the rest of the team. And everything we should have done or could have done or did do up until that moment of time, that's all you're ever going to do because that time has passed, right? So, you know, there's definitely, um, I think, underappreciation of the value of time is probably one of the most dire problems that people face you know go back to your earlier question about reaching satisfaction on things there's another aspect to that aside from the professional satisfaction you probably know this as well i've been a bicyclist since i was a kid and when i want to feel like i'm successfully doing something i look to other activities like i'll go out and i'll jump on my bike and i'll try to set my you know new record for covering 35 miles or 
you know, do, do something that makes me feel like I'm achieving something that's completely within my control, whether that's riding my bicycle or cutting my grass. You know, there are certain things that you, you know, they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And at the end, you're going to be able to look at it and go, I really like that, you know, uh, or, 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 gee, I could have done better, but at least it's measurable in a very limited context. Yeah, I call them fire starters. Like you can clean up uh-huh. your desk, you can clean up your room, you can clean up your office and you, you know that, okay, I'm going to do this for 20 minutes. I know how the energy in the room is going to feel. I, this is a guaranteed, I've got certainty around this payoff. And then you can get that, that boost that feeling of control. And then you can leverage that into the next activity that might be like a longer duration goal. That's that you're just going to chip a little bit away at today, you know? Right. My brother was a master carpenter and he used to say, if, if he has time on his hands, he's going to sharpen his saw. And that wasn't, that wasn't a figurative thing. That was, <laughs> okay. If he had time on his hands, he'd be out in the garage sharpening his saws because he knew the sharp saw is not only going to cut better, it's going to be safer, get the job done faster, more predictably, but higher quality, right? So if there are things you can do during those windows of time where you have the, the freedom to do it, and those help sharpen your saw, that's a great investment of time, right? Yeah. After I'm going to send you, I don't even think you need the book at first because I didn't read the book until years after I watched his hour long keynote. All right. Or I think there's like 45 minute keynote, but this atomic habits thing is just, uh, I'm, I'm just a huge fan. I think for some reason, you know, sometimes you just get like a feeling. I just have a feeling that if you, uh, that I should send you the link and you know give you the option to check it out because I found it incredibly uh, eye-opening and useful. Right. Well, I'm always looking for good books to read and to share with other people. Um, you know, and and you never know where that's going to come from. I I recently read a book that was shared with me by one of my Green Tech Motors board members, and it was about Roald Amundsen and his uh, his exploration of Antarctica in the early 1900s. And it contrasted Amundsen's approach to his competitors at that point in time. And it was a very interesting study on problem solving and on the strategy of exploration and on the acceptance of knowledge that was gained either in in a number of different ways. Amundsen was a very big fan of gaining knowledge from uh, native peoples who lived in cold environments. He went and lived with the Eskimos. He understood why their clothing was designed the way it was. And he applied that knowledge to exploring the Antarctic continent and applied it very effectively. He also took certain approaches to navigation and risk mitigation and preparation and secrecy and team building and team management. And the book contrasted that against his competitors who took a different approach to those same problems and why they failed and why he succeeded. Now, that book was, it had nothing to do with, you know, my challenges of every day, but when you read between the lines on things like this, and there's there's great learning, you know, and when you earlier referenced this whole notion of windows of opportunity going by and, and you find yourself maybe six months later, you realize what the value of that was, Sometimes the value in attempting to do anything is, did I fail well, okay? 
because you know, in, in development world, they say prototype early, prototype often, fail early, fail often, learn as fast as you can, repeat, right? Now, if you're not failing at things, there's a lot of things you're not learning. Babies learn to walk by falling down a thousand times, right? Um, yes. That's small, and the risk is low. You know, that's when you that's when you learn to walk. You don't work, you don't wait until you're 21. You know. So the same thing with organizations, you know, there's a point in time in an organization where your failures are relatively cheap, but the failure to learn from failure is highly, highly expensive. You know, the, risk of, the risk of not failing is greater than the risk of failing, right? So um, I, don't know, I don't know how you got your modern CTO thing going, but as, as an entrepreneur, you recognize that and you're having a degree of success. So uh, more power to you. Yeah. You want to hear the backstory real quick? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So my dad, when I was around eight, I had two siblings. And so my mom would say, you know, take, take Joel to work with you so that, you know, I, he, one less kid to, to manage. Right. And uh, we grew up pretty poor. And so I'd go and he'd do some freelancing jobs. He was an engineer technologist and um, everything from like putting in, you know, the first computer systems in the banks, the like hotel key card rooms. He would just have all of these oddball projects all hours of the day. And so I'd go with him on, on these rides and sit in all these empty offices. And he would give me little programming tasks on these computers to, to keep me busy. And at the time I'm like, you know, when I was first telling the story, I was like, Oh, he was such a good dad teaching me young. And then now that I have kids right now, <laughs> I realized he was just giving me something to keep me busy so he could get his work done, right? So I was like, oh, it always works out beautifully. And then, um, you know, fast forward through that, around age 13, I get hit by a car and I'm in a wheelchair for a year. So I come out of school and I just get to spend a lot of time on the computer, end up, you know, building software, uh, doing freelancing, ended up building some real estate software at age 18. Uh, and then I, you know, sold, sold the rights to that. And then I opened up a development agency and built apps for people and investors and companies for about a decade. And then when I was having my first kid, like right around that time, that's when my mom passed away. And I was like, okay, well, I could either do, I had some money saved. I was like, I could either do apps, you know, for the next two decades and watch my kids grow up, or I could, you know, take some more risk. And I saw all these people and you know, scrolling through feeds and they're all raising hundreds of millions of dollars and having exits. And I'm like, you know, I, I'm smarter than that person. I looked at their GitHub. I'm better at coding than that person. What's wrong? And I realized that the common connection is they all, they all had good relationships. They all knew good people and they had good reputations and they were good people, right? I wasn't, you know, saying that they were bad people. I was just, I, I, I envied them and I wanted to figure out how to, to have, a, you know, more and a better life. And so uh, at the time I said, all right, well, I've got two options. I can either go pursue this uh, idea for an like uh, AI memory storage that I had, or I could go and I was listen, listening to this social media guy talk about relationships and bringing value and just starting where you're at and, and sharing the experiences, you know, and, and just doing what you can with what you've got. Right. And I said, okay, let's go with that. Because if I go invest all my money into this AI startup idea that I have, and I'm off by three years of commercialization timeline, then I'm going to be broke right? If it can't commercialize quick enough, I'm out. And so I was unsure. I was like, it could be three to five years before that's needed. And so I said, I'm going to go do this uh, blog book podcast thing where I just start sharing everything I know and then inviting people and 
and growing it. And I just fully committed to it. And uh, it was a long, long, difficult road. And then, you know, about a year in or so, we got like a break and had like, you know, CTO of Microsoft on and Verizon. And then we had Douglas from the CTO, current CTO of uh, NASA. And then it, and then it kind of took off, right? I was at the point where I was having walks with my wife after work and I couldn't talk. I was losing my voice because I was doing three shows a day. <laughs> and so we had to back it down and back it down and figure out how to make money from it too. Cause I was, you know, at the end of my savings and, but it all, it all kind of came together. Right. Well, that's interesting. Um, that you should have ended up on this path kind of as a, uh, a happenstance. It's not what your intention, that's not what your intention was, but over the course of time, you recognize the opportunity, right? So, you know, and, and the timing was right. You know, we talked a minute ago about the value of time. And the other thing is the value of timing. You know, sometimes there's, I've been told there's a there's a name for an, a good idea that's ahead of its time, and it's called a bad idea. Right? <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's good. Yeah, well, that's that's a Mike Loungeism, um, and that's absolutely true. So you know, sometimes there's just the the right time for the when it's time to railroad, you railroad, right? And if you happen to be there at the right time with the right resources and the right team and the right idea. Boom! Things can happen. Uh, if you're two years early or two years late, maybe not so much. You, know? you just got to get up and try again. You, you just get a little bit, little bit smarter with each failure and keep keep going back at it. And now we're we're sitting in a new season here in our in our lives and the growth of the company where we're asking ourselves, you know, what's what's emerged organically and how can we amplify that? And so one of the things we get a lot is, is people reaching out to us saying, Oh, you know, I heard some advice on the show. It was fantastic. I implemented it. Thank you. And, or, or I had a call with, you know, I heard one of your guests and then I set up a call with them and they gave me some really great insight that actually got me promoted. And so now we're trying to like the next step in our business is trying to bring the audience from the podcast and, and connect the people who want to be connected into like groups and stuff. So that's, uh, that's what we're trying trying to do. We're just trying to be like the intermediary or like the catalyst that helps people, you know, connect and grow their, grow their leadership as a, as a technology person. Right. Well, the conditions are right for all of that to happen. You happen to be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, to get back to your earlier topic of, uh, commercial human space flight in low earth orbit or even you know off to the to the surface of the moon nasa is looking at commercial solutions for landing things on the moon whether it's payloads or human beings commercial solutions for providing logistics support uh all of that stuff the time is now okay this is when it, it, it's finally happening okay and everybody who's properly positioned to make that happen their window of opportunity is open. There's, I think, a, a universal understanding amongst all these different entrepreneurs who have been watching for this opportunity that if they don't figure out how to work together in new ways to make this happen within this window, then that opportunity might not happen again for another so many years. But if they, if they work together now and achieve some momentum, now it's not a not it's not a closed ended window anymore. It's an open ended window, you know. And it might take fifty years before commercial space flight services are operational 
to the surface of Mars. It might take a hundred, but it's a continuum now, okay? We all get on this continuum together. That's the great, that's, that's where the fun is, okay? Because it's not, again, it's not about technology so much as it's about coming up with creative ways for people to work together and make progress collectively. You know, let's, let's, uh, let's assume a common goal and get there. You know, I had an opportunity to work a number of years ago with a team of people on a space ham project. We had a goal of creating a certain capability that would enhance our commercial services to NASA. And we didn't have enough people on staff. So we went to Germany and we hired people from, uh, what is now uh, Airbus at the time it was Daimler Chrysler Aerospace. And we went to Russia and we hired people with Energia and we put together this team and made all these people recognize a common goal and work together. Now that was an interesting challenge because we had a group of American young entrepreneurial engineers who were the client and we were looking to deliver services to NASA. And then we had this big organization in Germany huge engineering company and we had this huge engineering company in russia and if you know the history between russians and germans it always hasn't been that great right so so taking these people and collectively forming a team that had a very aggressive schedule i mean we went from concept to first flight in like 24 months with a primary payload for a very small fraction of the cost of what it would have cost nasa and a very small fraction of the time so making that project happen on time, it wasn't about the technology. I mean, it was about the, the relationships and making the relationships work. The Germans have a saying, das ist auch mit Wasser gekocht, which means that's also cooked with water. So if you can figure out how to make those solutions work in one technological project, a lot of that is going to apply directly to the other technological project. Most of that has to do with people because they're the universal constant, right? I don't care what you're doing. There's going to be people involved. So um, making those relationships work is, is really, uh, it's a skill set and always learning about that. Uh, you mentioned Russia. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. I've, I've known like a lot of great people from Russia, but uh, I did see that they, uh, there was like an article and I saw that Russia claims Venus and I didn't look into it. So I don't know like how, like hyperbolic the statement was but you're in the space uh industry full-time what was that what was that about well i don't know but they're welcome to it (laughs) (laughs) you know i mean i'm I'm of the opinion that uh you know they're welcome to it just like uh you know if somebody thinks that they want to go colonize mars they're welcome to it as far as i'm concerned because everybody who goes to mars the only thing they're ever going to want to do is come back because that's a crappy place to live you know, there, there's no birds or grass or air or water or fish or anything else, okay? You would live in a completely synthesized environment that's highly constrained and not very, not, not a very good place to raise kids, all right? <laughs> um, so, you know, um, they're welcome to it. Now, you know, in terms of the relationship with, um, with Russians, uh, I feel very very privileged to have had the opportunity to travel to Moscow and to Korolev and work very closely with Russian engineers and develop relationships with those people that were beyond just sitting across a conference table, but 
you know, over the course of a few years, you see the same people often enough and you drink enough vodka together that uh, you tell enough jokes that you really get to know each other on a personal level. And, uh, you know, I highly, I highly respect the skills and the knowledge that those people have. They have developed an, on a parallel path in this, um, you know, the, the space race over the course of decades, they developed on a, on a parallel path and they have their heroes. We have our heroes. They have their approach to doing things as do we. But uh, like so many things, there are more similarities than there are distinctions between the two. And it's, it was very exciting to explore that and develop those relationships. Yeah, one of my friends, uh, Alex, he, or Alexi, but he, uh, when, I, when I first met him, I said, hey, what, what's the Russian word for, for vodka? And he said, water. <laughs> right. They never put a cap back on the bottle. Once you, once you open the bottle, the cap goes in the garbage can. And um, so that's, they've got some very interesting cultural uh, traditions. You know, we would go over there and have meetings for a week at a time. At the end of the meeting, you have a document uh, that everybody signs. It's called the protocol. And it is officially what happened and what you're going to do next and the action items and everything else. And that goes to upper management over there, and they all answer to that document. And then there's the real agreement, what you're really going to do. And that's what happens in the bathroom when you're standing there next to somebody and say, okay, that's what the protocol says. But what we're really going to do is this, right? And nobody needs to know, right? And you nod your head. And if you, if you violate that trust, you're not going to work with that person very well. Because that's the way things worked under the Russian system. There was what, needed to, what people needed to know and what people didn't need to know. And then it was what really got done. And that's the way their culture worked. Now, if you're going to work with those people, you have to recognize that that's part of their culture. Just like working with Brits or working with Germans or working with Americans, that's the, that's the rules. And we had a guy on staff when I was working with these people who was a Russian. And he would coach us so that we were aware. If you, make, if you establish a confidence with a person and you give that person your word, you do not break that word or you do not make that you do not make that agreement. If you know you're not going to be able to fulfill it, don't make it because you will burn down the relationship, right? So anyway, at the end of the day, after all these meetings, we have the protocol. You, they would go into a separate conference room and there were always a number of bottles of vodka on the table and hors d'oeuvres and things, and generally like one bottle of vodka for every three people. And the objective seemed to be how quickly can we, can we bottles? And nobody walks out of the room sober. Okay, but under those conditions, you really find out who amongst those people that you were just working with for the past week and a half, a month, who those people speak English and who of our team actually speaks Russian. Because you start telling jokes and people start letting their guard down and you establish that that relationship that's deeper than the working relationship, which is really it's the lubricant that makes those situations work. And it's not just true for, for Russians. It's, it's true for any team, right? It is. It's just how we all just have different ways of going about how to achieve that result, how to achieve that depth of relationship and trust. Right, right. And, um, but the opportunities are always there. You know, uh, you're always meeting people in your world who you, you gauge. And, and if you both see the same opportunity, that, that relationship starts to grow. But um, 
Yeah, and some people you find that you know that person's going to be difficult to work with, and you try to realize why, and then modify your own behavior to achieve some success. So, you know, and in the creative field, especially working with a lot of engineers, there is that effective communication that has to happen where they learn to respect my perspective, let's say, and I learn to respect their perspective so that we have that open communication as non-threatening uh, intersection between their factual bent and my creative bent. And, um, you know, what I've found out is that a lot of those people, you look at a lot of engineers, for example, you, among those very, very talented people, there are a lot of musicians, okay, because I think there's, a, there's an aspect to that type of a mind that looks at the beauty of music as a structure, as a, as a, as a mathematically uh, rational art form, and it just appeals to them. So, you know, I, I really think that if you find that creative common ground, uh, it can help make relationships work. I love how you, you brought in the music there because I, I happen to play music and one of the interesting things that was running through my mind as you were saying that it's like when I'm playing with other people or when I'm making a song and, and layering tracks or whatever part I'm in, I'm always trying to figure out what is the best for this song. And, and it's like a, it's a step outside of ego. It's, it's not like what's, how can I be the, you know, the star of this song? It's, it's like, how can we work together to make this song great? Or let's, let's all freestyle a little bit until this thing starts to take on a, a personality of its own. And then we can just kind of, you know, fan that, fan that flame. Right. Right. Well, there's, a, there's a degree to which, uh, creative teams can operate in analogous ways to musical ensembles. You know, you have the approach where you have a composer sitting somewhere who's composing all of the different score for all the different instruments of an orchestra. And now you, you've established this thing, you put it in front of an orchestra, and you have a conductor who's going to give you a certain interpretation based on how he wants to conduct that orchestra. He's going to give it a certain tempo. He's going to give it certain emphasis, certain sections of the orchestra. Okay. And then you've got the opposite end, you know, where you got, uh, you know, Eddie Van Halen and his brother standing on stage just riffing on things. And it's absolutely amazing, but it's totally improvisational. And no note has ever been written or ever will be written. And it will never be played the same way again. But there's a certain elegance and beauty to it. Okay because the chemistry is amazing, right? So if you look at organizations uh, like Green Tech Motors as an organization, we're challenged to essentially play improvisational jazz because we don't have the resources of the time available to script every single thing that we're going to do. There's a dynamism to it. There's a real-time creativity to it that is dependent much on communications and, and common goals, okay? But it's certainly, we don't have time to orchestrate. You know, if, if we stop to orchestrate, it's gonna be too late, we're going too slow, okay? Uh, what, what did somebody say about in jazz, there are no wrong notes, right? So uh, that's, you know, I, I really, I feel that in, in this whole creative world, there are a lot of interesting analogies and metaphors that, that 
uh, I find myself going to in order to kind of put things in shorthand, get the point across in shorthand. So um, I'm often accused of mixing metaphors, but I try not to. <laughs> You're discombobulating, right? Hey, there you go. You get it. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. Is there, um, as we start to wrap up, I, I have a last question here. Is I, I, the Orion renderings were were beautiful? The Orion span renderings, like I could, I was just blown away by them. I said, this looks like it should exist. This is the future. And you mentioned a couple times your your artistic side, and, you, and I was I was wondering if you have like a like an art habit or a blog do you do you generate renderings of other things do you like generate concept art for space regularly that i could follow or uh visual communication by art form to me it takes the form of sketches diagrams i i i sketch as well as i speak i guess um it's it's to me it's a communicating media it's not an art form if you will all right and i believe that the children should be taught to draw every much as they should be taught to write because it's not an artistic skill it's a communication skill that should be developed in people but the uh the renderings and the models that you see on the orion span website were produced by a guy named Bob Sauls, a company here in Clear Lake named XP4B. And Bob's a longtime friend of mine. Uh, he produces AI, he produces C CGI, let's say, for many different customers in the space field, for NASA, for Blue Origin, uh, SpaceX, Relativity Space. He is a maestro of producing CGI, whether it's still renderings or animations. And if if you recall the, the, the twin landing of the SpaceX boosters last year when they flew the Falcon 9 Heavy for the first time, and there was video of those two boosters coming down simultaneously, boom, hitting. And uh, Bob created some videos of that event months before. And if you look at Bob's animations and the actual footage side by side, his ability to, to render that kind of reality with the tools at his disposal is just amazing. So, you know, like so many other things, you don't, you don't necessarily do it yourself. You find, you find the pro from Dover to do that for you. Um, and then develop a great relationship with those person where, you know, my sketches informed Bob's models in a matter of minutes rather than a matter of weeks, because we have such a great relationship. I love it. Well, Frank, this is awesome. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Oh, I feel good. I'm glad you uh, contacted me. And, uh, you know, if y'all don't mind, I'm going to put this on my LinkedIn page as a, a way for people to get to know me. And I appreciate your great skill in hosting the podcast. Uh, you do a great job. I've looked at a bunch of your podcasts, so very comfortable. Love the beard, by the way. Thank you. I really appreciate the kind words. You know, as, as things go forward, if you have any questions for me, never hesitate to call. Um, I'm always available and always available for anybody else who wants to reach through this podcast and connect with me. Please do. Okay. And we'll post links in the show notes to your, to your LinkedIn and uh, connection information as well. All right. Very good. Talk soon. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.